Amen. Let me invite you to be seated. Children, you can make your way to your wonderful teachers. Yes. Uh, so, uh, just a reminder, uh, on the way in you received a, uh, along with your program, you received a sheet that has our upcoming events on it, and so let me encourage you to make note of those. Again, make note of the food drive that will be in a couple of weeks where we'll go knock on about 500 doors here in the community and gather some food to take to the Central Union Mission uh, to help them provide Thanksgiving meals. Uh, if I have not had a chance to meet you, my name is Joey Kraft. I serve as one of the pastors here and so thankful the saints of Restoration and Temple are here as we worship the Lord together. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we'll finish up Luke chapter 1 this morning. And I start by giving you an assignment. And the assignment is this. Summarize the Bible in one sentence. What would you say? How would you capture all the Bible tells and teaches us in a single tweet? What might you say to condense all Scripture says in a way that even a six-year-old would begin to grasp it? Is it even possible? Perhaps the Bible is such a random mixture of carelessly placed fables, there is no way to consolidate so many haphazard tales into one coherent thought. Or maybe you think this is actually quite easy. There might be variations, but the summary goes like this. Don't do that. Try really hard to do this, and then God will be pleased with you. But what if both of those ways of approaching Scripture, and more importantly, approaching God Himself, were not actually what the Bible says? What if we could summarize the Bible in a clear, concise sentence? And this sentence wasn't about what we must do, but what God has done. What if the Bible isn't a self-help manual, but it is good news of a divine rescue mission? If you were to ask me to answer my own question, I've thought about it in various ways, but this is one of the ways I might put it. Through Jesus, His life, death, resurrection, reign, and return, through Jesus, God is restoring everything our sin ruined. Through Jesus, God is restoring everything our sin ruined. Or to make it even more simple, God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixes it. That's what the Bible is about. Though it's many stories, it is one true story about God loving His wayward people so much that the author of the story enters into the mess of the story that He might bring His beloved children home into His presence forever. It seems far-fetched, even impossible, doesn't it? That God would love us and like us enough and we could know Him and enjoy Him. But as we've seen, What's impossible with us is possible with God. And as we've studied the Gospel of Luke these past four weeks, we've seen that this is what God has been up to. That God is doing what seems impossible for His glory and our joy. 
Luke 1 tells us the story of two children conceived in the most impossible and improbable ways. Remember, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're well advanced in years. Beyond the age, anybody would think they could have a child. And yet the Lord gives them a son. And then we met Mary. A young teenage gal who has not known a man. And she finds herself pregnant with a son. Why start here? Why not jump all the way to Jesus' ministry, Luke? Well, Luke is showing us from the very beginning of his Gospel, that salvation must come in a way that only God can accomplish. And that's good news, because if God accomplished it, if God accomplished it, we can rest that the work is complete. It is finished. Which reminds us why Luke wrote this letter, remember? Remember how Luke, remember those opening verses? Luke writes to tell us all that was accomplished by Jesus. Why? So that we might be what? Do you remember? We might be certain. Luke is writing to tell us, hey, this is what Jesus has done. This is what what he did and why it all matters. And he wants you to be certain. And with certainty comes hope and joy. And God is kind. He knows that we have struggles and doubts, questions and concerns. So he gives us this gospel account and really all of Scripture so we might be certain about the person and the work of Jesus that our assurance might be firm and our joy might be full. And that's what we led last week, right? This letter has been dripping with joy. Mary giving God praise for the ways he's bringing about his promised redemption. Now this week, we read of Zechariah doing the same thing. Both Mary and Zechariah understand God is sovereignly and graciously working to bring about his promised salvation. And both react with love and praise. And Luke is inviting us to join this song. That we might glorify God. That's the point of this passage. The Lord is faithful. Rejoice in what He's done and trust Him for what He will do. If you're like me, a to-do list guy, you will be frustrated with the lack of, quote, practical application in this passage. We love our to-do list. I don't even have a nifty outline for you this morning. I don't even have three or four nicely crafted points for you to write in your bulletin. Because this text is not calling you to do. Its aim is to produce something in you. The invitation this morning, the application for our lives is to behold, to treasure the Lord in His faithfulness. And when we do that, we will erupt rejoicing what the Lord has done. And we will rest as we trust Him for what He will do. In verses 57 through 66, we have a picture of the Lord's faithfulness. And then in verses 67 through 79 or 80, we hear praise for the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord is faithful. Let's rejoice in what He's done and trust Him for what He'll do. Let's read chapter 1, 57 through 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth And she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, "No, he shall be called John." And they said to her, "None of your relatives is called by this name." And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. 
And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. God does just as He said He would do. It's easy to run past those straightforward words in verse 57. She bore a son. But in those simple words are wrapped up decades and decades of prayer and fulfillment to God's promise. Remember to the earlier part of chapter 1 where we first met Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest. He's in the temple. And the most improbable situation unfolds. An angel, angel Gabriel, shows up to Zechariah. And he, he says this, Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. Right there in verse 57, we see that God the promise maker is God the promise keeper. She bore a son. The Lord's promises will not fail and go unanswered. God is performing His word. Elizabeth rejoices. Imagine the scene. Elizabeth barren for decades. Bearing the reproach of cultural shame. Having lived so long with unmet godly desires. And now she receives a child. I can picture tears flowing down her cheeks, praise erupting from her mouth. Her husband, Zechariah, we know he can't speak, so maybe he's, his mouth is moving, but nothing is coming out. Tears of gladness likely running down his wrinkled skin onto his old gray beard. And we have the tears and sobs of joy from this most improbable mom and dad now mixing with the wails of a newborn son. And all these Praises echo beyond their walls. The neighbors, the relatives begin to show up. In a small village, a birth is big news, especially the birth of the priest and his barren wife. And now many others are rejoicing, just like God said would happen back in chapter 1, verse 14. Notice verse 58. The Lord had shown great mercy to her. This is not Simply a chance biological process or a lucky situation. The Lord is involved. He is showing Elizabeth and Zechariah mercy. God has been good to this old couple. And they celebrate. And eight days later, another day of celebration comes. It's time to circumcise their son. Circumcision, if you remember, is the sign of God's covenant. His relationship with His people Israel. And as faithful, righteous Israelites, Zechariah and Elizabeth are obeying God's command to circumcise their son on the eighth day. This was a big day for them. On this day, they were publicly saying, our family belongs to God. Our son belongs to God and his people. On this joyous celebration, the Evite goes out. And all the neighbors and friends show up for the ceremony. Verse 59. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. They just know this boy is going to be a junior. 
And you can almost hear them arriving saying, Oh, isn't little Zacky so cute? Little Zacky looks just like Big Zack. How amazing. Right? Some of you have been here recently. Others freely offer input on what they think you should name your child. My guess is they're trying to honor Zechariah. Maybe they're thinking, they've tried for so long, waited for decades for this child, surely they'll name him after his father to keep the family name alive. Nice thought. But Elizabeth will have none of it. No. His name shall be called John. And you would think they would back off. Elizabeth, after all, is the one who prayed for decades, carried this very child in her own womb, went through the pain of childbearing. Surely she has the right to name her own son. But the family and friends don't get the clue. They continue to offer their objection and their suggestions. None of your relatives is called by this name. They don't get it. They're basically saying, why not honor your husband? And where does John come from? It doesn't even start with a Z. What are you thinking, Elizabeth? Our name for the boy makes sense. Your name makes no sense. Maybe they think that she's trying to pull a fast one over on her husband because he's over there and can't say anything. And so what do they do? Oh, we're going we're gonna to figure this out. We're going to go ask Zechariah. So they signed to him, what do you want the son to be called? We, don't, we know Zechariah can't speak, maybe he can't hear, we don't know, but somehow they communicate to him that they surely think that he is on their side. So they ask him, what's, what's the son's name? Verse 63, And he, Zechariah, asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. Zechariah takes out his first century iPad, opens up the doodle app, takes his finger and scribbles as big as possible. His name is John. Underline, bold, exclamation point, all caps. Notice he doesn't say we're thinking about naming him John. He's even more emphatic than his wife. He doesn't say he shall be called John. What does he say? His name is John. It isn't up to me. It isn't up to you. It isn't up to Elizabeth. It's up to God. His name is an accomplished fact. The result, they all wondered, the text says. The family and friends begin to wonder what's going on. They're breaking with our traditions. They're not following cultural norms. Such it is when we follow the Lord, isn't it? I'm guessing none of us will get a divine revelation of what to name our child. But, Our biblically informed, spirit-wrought, Christ-exalting decisions will seem odd to some of those around us, even our family. Some of our God-honoring decisions will not make sense to our neighbors who do not have the same view of the Lord as us. You're going to teach and educate your children how? You're going to move overseas why? You're only going to date who? You're going to wait For marriage to do what? You're going to prioritize your time how? 
These questions, beloved, are not new. They're thousands of years old. But here's a question. What's the big deal with the name John? I mean, why not just honor Zechariah? Or for that matter, call him Bob. He could still be a prophet. Well, Luke doesn't tell us explicitly. But I can see at least two reasons. First, like we've seen, in taking a name outside the family, God is again indicating His unfolding plan of redemption comes from outside the natural order of things. In taking a name not linked with Zechariah and Elizabeth, God is hinting, who I am and what I'm going to do cannot be accounted for by natural means. He's beginning to stir their spiritual imagination for what He might be up to. And the wonder of what God is up to is tied to the name John itself. These people would have known that John means what? The Lord is gracious. Yes, he's been gracious to Zechariah and Elizabeth by giving them a son. But even more staggering, as we'll see, John will point to Jesus who is the grace of God. So while these people were worried about perpetuating a name to keep it in the family, John was being raised up that we might be part of a new family. And this family comes not by merit, not by being born into a family, not by religious tradition, but all by grace. The Lord is gracious. Scripture tells us God's grace is great, sovereign, steadfast, exceeding, manifold, lavish, all-sufficient, abundant, beautiful, and glorious. And this grace is not an abstract thing, but an actual person, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we have grace upon grace, wave after wave of grace crashing into our lives. God names him, the Lord is gracious because of his ministry. He'll have pointing to and preparing for Jesus, the grace of God. Here in the birth of John, we see, yes, indeed, the Lord is faithful and gracious in ways our finite minds cannot even begin to comprehend. Zechariah confirms. His name is John. And look what happens. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke. Zechariah couldn't speak, maybe couldn't hear for the better part of the last year. If that were you, what might be the first thing that comes out of your mouth? If it were me, can I be honest? Probably a few things I want to get off my chest. Or, I would immediately want others to know how bad I had it. How hard my situation was. What about Zechariah? Remember why he couldn't speak in the first place, remember? He was under God's discipline for doubting God's ability to give him a son. So for nine months, he's been shrouded in silence. Zechariah's had time to think about all that transpired. His sin. God's discipline. Day after day, as he saw his wife's belly grow, he rehearsed God's promise to himself. Day after day, as he saw his wife's belly grow, he considered the name John. God is gracious. Remember, Zechariah is a priest. And so I just, in my mind's eye, I don't don't know if this is how it transpired, but in my my mind's eye, I imagine him in, in his home with the scrolls just laid out before him 
pondering and meditating as he can't speak. Just meditating while all this is taking place. And the time comes and he's asked, what is your son's name? It's the moment of truth. His name is John. And at that moment of faith and obedience, God does just what he said he would do back in chapter 1. He lifts his merciful hand of discipline in Zechariah speaks. Blessing God. The first thing to come out of Zechariah's mouth is praise. Joy and honor erupt deep from within in his soul. The discipline of God upon Zechariah's life did not drive God away from him, but made God all the more near to him. J.C. Ryle, a saint of the past, said this, Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. The sorrow that humbles us and drives us near to God is a blessing. Zechariah had learned probably more about his own heart and about God than he ever knew before. End quote. Think about that. Zechariah, he's a priest. He's a godly, righteous man, well along in his walk with the Lord. And yet, he is still learning and growing. Being changed and challenged by God. Yes, he had sinned against God. But evidently, he repented and he's growing from it. And I think this is a lesson for us all. None of us have arrived at complete spiritual maturity. Even the most seasoned saint among us still requires the loving hand of our Father to guide us and shepherd us. Beloved church, like Zechariah, when you feel the pain of sin, rejoice. Rejoice that God loves you enough to draw near to you. He's so faithful. He's so faithful that He graciously and tenderly frustrates us in our sin. And this is not because He's against us, but because He is for us. See, God knows the shallow happiness of sin is like drinking salt water. Upon first taste, it might be refreshing, but eventually in time, it will shrivel you up from the inside. And He knows. Hebrews 12 tells us God is like a good and caring Father. He's faithful to to discipline those whom He loves. And we see this in Zechariah. God is gracious. I know some of you have had father experiences that are not this way, that have been abusive or, or hurtful. That's not like God. God is caring and kind and careful and compassionate. And His discipline is for our good. It reminds us complete happiness is found in Him. Let me offer another compassionate caution here. Sometimes our suffering is not the direct result of our sin or God's discipline. Sometimes suffering comes as shrapnel living in a broken world that pierces our soul. And sometimes it's hard to know where one starts and the other stops. But in both instances, dear brothers and sisters, in both instances, suffering in our lives is not God's sledgehammer coming down on us because He doesn't care for us. Suffering is God's scalpel. He cuts like a careful surgeon. God wounds only that He might heal. 
Zechariah has come to understand this. In his first words, bless the Lord. And people around begin to hear and, and, and ask. Verse 66. What will this child be? Maybe they're thinking this is, this is the answer to God's promise. Maybe this is the one. Well, what is this child going to be? This is amazing. We have the answer in verses 67 through 80. Zechariah's song, praising the Lord. Let's read those. Luke 1, 67 through 80. And his father Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, and was prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Zechariah, filled with the Spirit, as we've already seen, like Mary, Elizabeth, and even John from the womb. He does what Spirit-filled people do. He praises the Lord for the promise of redemption and the nearness of the Redeemer. And as he done, he, he, he reverberates that one harmony of Scripture, singing the one story the Lord has been sovereignly orchestrating just as He's promised. His first words sum the tune-up of the whole song, don't they? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Notice He doesn't even start by thanking God for His Son. That's great. But there is something even greater at work. Why is Zechariah praising the Lord? Look at the second half of verse 68. For or because he has visited and redeemed his people. Verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Zechariah praises the Lord for redeeming his people. That is God liberates or buys back, rescues his people. How? By raising up a horn of salvation. Again, remember, Zechariah is a priest, well versed in scripture. And so his, his, the words from his heart drip with references to and language from the Old Testament. The idea of the Lord visiting and redeeming comes directly from the book of Exodus. Go read Exodus 4 this afternoon. You will see, the Lord says, I will visit you. Zechariah is thinking about the Exodus and he's like, there is a greater Exodus that is coming. And how? By raising up a horn of salvation. Again, that's in 2 Samuel 22, Psalm 18. This is not a musical horn that would be played. It is, it is a horn of an animal. Strong, powerful weapon like that of a wild ox. Zechariah is saying, God will raise up a strong Savior and a mighty salvation. 
And did you notice the language? Has visited. Has redeemed. Has raised up. Those are all past tense. And yet this actually hasn't happened. Zechariah is so sure of the future, he speaks as if it's already been accomplished. How can he do that? Because he knows if God has promised, it's as good as done. And Zechariah knows God the promise maker is God the promise keeper. He is faithful. He will bring his redeemer. This promised redeemer will be from the house of David, verse 69. So we know he's not talking about his son. He's not from the house of David. He's talking about somebody else. And from verses 72 and 73, this Redeemer will be the answer to God's covenant promises to the, to the patriarchs, the fathers of old, especially Abraham. Genesis 12, God said through Abraham, all the families, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. Who might this be? Who would be from the house of David, from the lineage of Abraham, who will redeem and bless all peoples? Verse 68, did you notice it? It's God himself. He is the one who visits. He is the one who comes. He is the one who redeems. And we know that God comes in the person of Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer, who buys us back from bondage to sin and shame, Satan and death. That's who comes. As far as I know, I'm not an expert, but as far as I know and understand, Every other world religion teaches how we must climb up to God. That we must use our strength to earn His favor. But in Christianity, God comes down to us in Christ. God's strength is not shown in His isolation from us, but His intimacy with us. That's this God. So if you don't believe in God because He's distant, uncaring, and uninvolved, I do not blame you. And it might surprise you to know, I don't believe in that God either. But the God of the Christian faith is different. The one true God knows you, cares for you, makes promises to you, and acts for you in Jesus. Maybe you've never had that thought before. If that's you, you want to know more about that, come talk to me afterwards. I'll be either up here or back there, one of the two. Or ask the person that brought you this morning. Or show up at one of our community groups this week and ask those people. I don't understand what this man said on the stage. Can you help me understand it? For my Christian brothers and sisters, remember as Zechariah says, notice what he says. God saves a people. It's The Christian faith is us and we, not just I and me. He saves a people. It's a corporate prayer. And so let's come alongside each other and pray for each other that the Spirit would give us this same rock-solid confidence Zechariah shows in the song. Think about this. He had the fake... Faith to speak as if God's redemption was complete and yet Jesus the Redeemer wasn't even born yet. And we, beloved, we stand on the other side of the cross and resurrection. 
How much more confidence do we have? There's an old hymn that has these lines. My name from the palm of His hand, eternity will not erase. Impressed on His heart, it remains and in marks of indelible grace. Yes, to the end I shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given. More happy but not more secure, the glorified saints in heaven. Think about that. The saints in heaven, right now, might be more happy, but they're not more secure than you in Christ. And you know what else? They're not more loved by God than you are right now in Christ. They are not more clean and righteous than you are. They are not more forgiven than you are. There is nothing you can do, beloved. And there is nothing that can be done to you to make God love you or like you any less than He does right now in Christ. That sounds impossible. The future already being accomplished now? Yes. This is the God that we serve. Because God is faithful, future promises are as good as present realities. So what's most true about you? Your identity. What's most true about you? The core of who you are is secure. Not because of your performance. But because of God's promise. Nothing is impossible with God. Because of who He is and what He's done, we can be certain of our salvation and we can be certain of His affection. Remember the last time I preached, I made this phrase up and I said the nowness of your belovedness. That's what's going on here. Zechariah is rejoicing in the nowness of his belovedness and that will never change. The only thing that will happen is we'll realize it and enjoy it more and more. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul would go on and write. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. And that's part of Zechariah's praise. Look there again in verse 74 and 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. A couple of times in this song, we hear Zechariah praising God for saving him or delivering him from the enemies. All who hate us. The question is, who are these enemies? Is Zechariah primarily talking about being concerned with being oppressed by the Roman people at this time? Is that, is that his concern? I don't think so. Notice this redemption. Notice this salvation. Isn't about national liberation, but spiritual transformation. What's the goal? The goal isn't physical freedom, but to create a holy and righteous people who are before the Lord all their days without what? Without fear. That's what Zechariah's aim is. And so this redemption, whatever this redemption, moves us from fear of God to worshiping before God. All of our days. How is that going to happen? Well, Zechariah tells us. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. Zechariah changes his focus 
His words now address his newborn son. And again, just, just take a moment, just imagine what might be happening here. Some of you fathers have, have just experienced this or will experience it very soon. Tears of joy still coming down his face. Maybe he, he gets the, the closest blank and as best as possible, wipes down his son and swaddles him as best as he can. Now he's, he's cradling him in his arms. And he begins to intimately sing to this little boy. And he answers the question, what then will this child be? He'll go before the Lord. This little boy will grow up and be a prophet. And not just any prophet, but he would be the forerunner who prepares the people for the coming of the Lord. John is not the Redeemer, but he will point people to the Redeemer. And what is John going to do, verse 77? He's going to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The knowledge here is not mental, just mental assent or intellectual agreement like I know 2 plus 2 is 4. That's not what he's talking about. That knowledge alone, though necessary, alone is not sufficient. The knowledge that he's talking about is affection, intimacy. And what would the people know? What would, what would animate their soul? What would be their hope and their joy? They would know what? The forgiveness of sin. Verse 80 tells us John would spend a time of preparation in the wilderness like many prophets before him. And then he would come, as we'll see in a couple weeks, Luke 3.3, 3, he would proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John would proclaim salvation. The one to come would purchase it. John would call the people to repent and look to Jesus the Redeemer. And when we hear that word repent, we have to remember, we have to remember, repentance is not a rude intrusion crippling our joy. It's a lavish invitation calling for the completion of our joy. That's what John is doing. Did he have some hard words sometimes? You bet, you'll see him in a few weeks. But I think John would say, listen, soft words make hard people. But hard words make soft people for the glory of Christ. Zechariah sings about our greatest problem and deepest need. And that which leads to our highest joy, the forgiveness of sin. But what is sin and why do we need to be forgiven? What's all this religious talk? Well, sin is not primarily wrong Deeds, wrong, but it's wrong loves. So sin most certainly is doing thing God forbids and failing to do what God commands. But it's more. It's disordered love. And here's what we have to remember. It's quite often God's good gifts, spouse, friends, money, job, degree, aspirations, these things are often the things that grab our highest affection. But it doesn't matter what we prefer above God. Only that we prefer it to Him. And that's sin. That's sin. And with that understanding, all of us fall short of the glory of God. Myself the foremost. Come hang out with me this afternoon. You will see that I fall short of the glory of God. I rebel against God. And remember, God is intimate and personal. So, that, so this 
So the sin isn't like the breaking of some arbitrary speed limit where we get a fine from a random police officer. That's not what it is. Like God's up there with a big stick just waiting to whack us. That's not the picture of God in Scripture. In fact, you know one of the, we know one of the, the, the most pronounced images the Bible uses in Scripture to describe our rebellion? It says God is a faithful husband. And we are the unfaithful wife. That's the picture. Sin isn't just breaking God's rules. It's personally rejecting Him and breaking His heart. And that's why we need to be forgiven. Why? Because of who God is. He's personal. And He's holy. So left to ourselves, we must face God's just judgment. So how can we be holy and righteous so that God can forgive us? Do we have to perform enough to show we're really worth forgiveness? Do we have to follow a religious system so that we show that we're, we're more deserving than those people? Is that what happens? Look at the text. Verse 78. Why are we forgiven? Because of the tender mercy of our God. Those have been the sweetest words to me in this passage. Nathan said this last week from here. For whatever reason, I don't know what the Lord is doing, but my soul also has been dry. And these words, tender mercy. God is tender. God is merciful. God is compassionate. God is lavish in His grace, extravagant in His love. That's who this God is. And we see this tender mercy in the one to whom John points, don't we? Jesus. Think about Jesus' life. He was full of tender mercy. Welcoming all kinds of people into His presence. And on the cross... Jesus paid for our sin. He exhausted the wrath of God that we might receive tender mercy from God. On the cross, Jesus died for our sin that we might be holy. He took our rebellion that we might be called righteous. If you're crushed under the guilt and shame of your sin, tender mercy in Christ. No matter what you've done. No matter how messed up your past is. You can turn to God and cry out for forgiveness of sin. None of us are beyond the reach of God's tender mercy. The vilest of sin. The smuggest of self-righteousness. Can be forgiven with a faith-filled confession and heartfelt repentance. Your sin might surprise you. It doesn't surprise God. And He's ready to forgive when we come in Christ. There is more tender mercy in God than sin in us. Will you come to Him this morning? He's faithful. Will you rejoice in what He's done and trust Him for what He'll do? Zechariah wraps up his song by describing what this salvation is like. Uh, verse 79 tells us, salvation brings light to those in darkness. Life 
to those in the shadow of death. Zechariah is giving us a picture, a, a graphic picture of what life without Jesus is like. Without Jesus, we're like travelers on a dark and dangerous path, not knowing which way to go. Death from robbers and wild beasts lurk in the shadows. It's too cold and we're too afraid to go to sleep. All we can do is desperately hope for the morning light. And there's good news. The sunrise has come. Jesus Himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus, the light of the world, has dawned. God in the flesh, coming to redeem His people. And Jesus took on this darkness and death. And Jesus did not just walk in the shadow of death. He hung on the cross, the substance of death. And He went into a dark tomb. But He did not stay dead. He rose three days later, bursting forth as the light of the world. That's this Christ. Darkness now flees. Death is now abolished for all who trust Him. And what does He do? He guides our feet in the way of peace. Jesus, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, illuminates our soul with peace. Not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of completeness, wholeness, flourishing. Peace with God. Peace within ourselves because we know who we are and whose we are because of what Christ accomplished. And peace with each other because we're bound together by the Prince of Peace. And this peace anchors us. It gives us a hope as we journey through life's hardships toward ultimate peace. Heaven on earth. Where we'll forever be in God's peace. Enjoying the world, enjoying each other, enjoying God as it was always meant to be. Which we're going to sing in a minute. We are bound, brothers and sisters. We are bound for the promised land and that land is the land of forever peace. The Lord is faithful. Luke is saying, you want to come join the chorus? You want to come sing with Zechariah this morning? Will you join him? Will you rejoice in what the Lord has done? Will you trust him in what he will do? Will you have such a rock solid confidence that you say the future is now accomplished? Future promises are present realities because of Jesus. This is the invitation, church. This is what we get to do together as we journey toward heaven, the land of forever peace. Let's pray. Father, how glorious You are. Thank You for Your Scripture. Thank You for the song of Scripture. Thank You for the song of Zechariah. Warm our souls by your tender mercy that we might glory in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Lord, you have to do this. We cannot manufacture this on our own. So Holy Spirit, break in 
that we might be like Zechariah, no matter what happens to us, no matter what happens around us, our words would be, our instinct would be, our souls would erupt blessing the Lord. Do this, we ask. For the glory of Christ, for the peace within our own soul. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.